Hello, and welcome to the City Grace Podcast. We're so happy you've decided to join us today as we learn how amazing it is to follow Jesus. Enjoy the message. So glad that everyone's here. Welcome to everybody um, that's here. And if today's kind of your first day to, to, to join us, um, you're jumping in to the second part of a little three-part series that we're doing here in December uh, to kind of talk about what Christmas means and, and find out maybe what Christmas can, can mean to us if it doesn't already. And last week, we, we talked about something that should give us hope. And I was talking about this just a moment ago, that really God has everything under control. Like that we get impatient and we wonder where God is and we wonder why God's not speaking or God's not moving or God's not answering our prayers. But God is in control. God has an answer for your prayer, but he's not going to move until it's, a, it's the God time. He's not going to move unless it's the God way. And so God doesn't just give us the answers that we want, but he gives us the answers that we need. And when it is the perfect time, God will do what God does if we'll let him be God. But this week, in, in, in today's message, I want to talk about something that, um, I, I, I want to tackle something, really an issue that I think might be part of the reason that uh, a lot of people, and maybe some of you here today, uh, don't fully engage or engage all the way with you know, Christianity or following Jesus. Um, and I think if you'll lean in, you'll listen to this, it can kind of speak to your heart and speak to your soul and, and maybe hopefully pull you a little bit closer to Jesus. But when I was thinking about how to get there and how to kind of help us all relate to it, um, I decided that I was going to have to do this difficult task up front. I'm going to have to go ahead and say something. I'm going to have to be the one that puts this out there. Um, and some of y'all may look at me differently after this, but it needs to be said because we all know this, but we're just a little bit too polite and kind around the holidays and we let this kind of go by. And what I want to tell us all, what we all already know, is that nobody likes getting socks for Christmas. Can I hear an amen from somebody? If you want to buy me socks, do it on November 25th, right? Maybe December 27th. Like, wait for a sale. There's no need to put them in wrapping paper, really, you know, and I know, I know that makes me a horrible person. You know, I appreciate the socks, but that's not, that's not a good surprise for a kid. Like, especially when you're a kid, man, you're counting presents, right? Like, when we were kids, always count presents under the tree. You know, Jason would have 15 presents. I'd have 40 presents under the tree. It's just, you know, all this stuff going on. You got 25 presents for Christmas, and 24 of them are pairs of socks, and then you got a tennis ball. Like, that's just, that's, that's not a good, you know, so, and, and, and it's kind of, you know, maybe for adults, that might speak to the kid in you, maybe for adults, um, how many of y'all like buying new tires for your car? Yeah, that's what I thought. Nobody likes buying new tires for your car. You spend all this money, spend hundreds of dollars on tires, and then you just basically end up with the same thing you had before. I hate buying tires, right? It's a disappointment to buy new tires. I hate buying brakes, right, for your car. I like stopping, but I hate buying Breaks. I, we had to paint our house last year. It cost thousands of dollars. I hated painting my, like I live on the inside of the house. Painting my house outside wasn't even for me. That was for the neighbors. You know, and, and, and the thing is, and why I'm bringing this up is that I think for some of us, 
uh, you know, the, the way that God or the way that religion or church or, or Christianity was presented to us, or maybe it wasn't even presented this way, but maybe we kind of, this is how we kind of understood it or received it. And this isn't just something I found talking with one person. A lot of people have kind of, you know, this comes up, but Christmas and God and, and being a Christian and following Jesus, really, when we were younger, it was almost all a little bit kind of magical, right? It all felt a little bit kind of once upon a time-ish, Right? And then as you get older and, and you bump into some things, God and, and church and being a Christian can almost feel like opening socks on Christmas. Like I thought it was something way different than what it turned out to be. God didn't work at all like I expected. Right? Like we've all prayed prayers that it seemed like God was never going to answer. And then we had time. It got quiet in here. Everybody's like, wait, where's Jared going with this? Like, we all had time, honestly, right? Be honest in church. We've all had times where we were being good. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like, you've made your own list. You've checked it twice. You know you're not naughty. You know you're nice. Like, you, everything's good. You've been good, and then bad things happen. Like, wait a minute. That's not the way this is supposed to work. And then you know some people. Maybe you're friends with some people, related to some people. They're not being good. You know them. And then good things happen to them, right? It's like, it doesn't, it, it just feels off. It feels like that's not what I expected. That's not really what I wanted. Or maybe it's like buying tires. You know, you feel a little bit safer, but life doesn't really feel like it changed, right? Like my life doesn't really feel upgraded in the day today. But maybe, maybe if that's our experience of Christianity, if that's our experience of following, if that's maybe why you're not consistent, you're not leaning in, you're not really engaged with following Jesus, maybe there's more to it than your childhood version of what you thought God and church and religion was all supposed to be about. I think there is more. Anybody in the room want to help me out because y'all are making me nervous? Like, there's more. Come on, somebody say, there's more. All right, nobody can lie in church, so we know there's more. Because after all, Christianity is... It hasn't just survived for 2,000 years. It is thriving across the globe, around the world. Christianity really is thriving against impossible odds, against unexplainable odds. There seems, you know, some in our culture may be trying to seem like they're dancing around the deathbed of Christianity, but there's this groundswell of curiosity out there. There are a lot of people and, and historians and archaeologists and, and philosophers that are starting to take Christianity serious, uh, seriously again because Christianity, as it turns out, has some really, really great answers to some really, really tough questions in life. And from a handful of Jewish believers at the beginning to over two and a half billion today, over a third of the world's population today, all of it was started by a young Jewish carpenter about 2,000 years ago who never traveled outside of about a 40-mile radius. As far as we can tell, his public ministry, his public career was like just under the three-year mark. We're generous, and we go ahead and say it was the three-year mark. And, and then his own people lied about him. Like, they rejected him. They didn't even celebrate him as a hero. His own people, the Jewish people, they rejected him, and they turned him over to Rome and lied, and Rome executed him. And then when, they, when they, Rome executed him, all of his followers like unplugged and unfollowed and they all went back home and there was nobody in the streets declaring the philosophies and the teachings of another dead, good, moral teacher. The world had seen plenty of good, moral teachers who had died and nobody put Jesus in that category. 
But here's the amazing thing. Three days later, those same people that had ran and hid themselves and weren't given anybody the teachings of Jesus, they came back boldly into the public light, no longer fearing arrest, no longer fearing being crucified just like Jesus had been crucified. And they made some of the most outrageous claims that Jesus had been crucified by the Romans and they had seen him die, but they had seen him alive again. And it wasn't just like he was back with some bandages on, like holding on to an IV pole, like he somehow survived. Like No, like he came out the other side of the tomb victorious and risen and somehow other There was something about Jesus. It was a miracle. It was something supernatural, something unexplainable. And within two years, now this is really important, within like two to three years, There were actually written accounts of what had gone on in the Jesus movement. And this is really important. you got to hear this. This is so important because people that study this stuff, historians and people that study ancient cultures and and mythology and all of these kinds of things, they all agree. You go to any of them, Princeton, Yale, Harvard, go talk to those people that, that work there. They will tell you in any ancient culture, with any ancient myth or any ancient story, it takes at least 80 to 100 years for an event to become fantasized and then turned into a myth or a fable. And do you know why it takes 80 to 100 years? Because you need all the eyewitnesses to die. You can't have anybody alive to contradict the fable. And what's amazing is that in 1 Corinthians 15, one of these early documents that we have through history and and archaeology, you can trace that back, and it, it, it hints at the written accounts that existed in the world and were passed around the world within three years of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then it gets worse. Like these people that said they had seen Jesus, the outsiders, because they were starting to make some noise, outsiders started trying to tell them, hey, if you guys don't be quiet about what you say you have seen, we're going to kill you. And the people that had seen a risen Jesus said, go ahead and kill us because we saw what happens to people who follow our Savior and are killed. We saw him get back up again. And they weren't even scared of dying. And what's beautiful, I love their literature. After all of this happened, whenever they would talk about one of their own dying after that, they wouldn't say they were dead. They would say they've fallen asleep. Because when you go to sleep, there comes a time when you get back up again. And these accounts of these eyewitnesses that were spreading all over around the world, verifiable accounts, undisputed accounts, no serious critics of Jesus put any serious accounts out into the public sphere. There were too many eyewitnesses. And the accounts of these eyewitnesses have inspired art. They've inspired music and architecture and unrivaled humanitarian efforts all around the globe. And they've elevated the status and the dignity of the poor and the oppressed peoples all around the world. And even in this room, there are some rational people, not very many of us, but there's a couple. And we know, we claim that Jesus is still alive. And his spirit and his presence still lives within us. And for some reason that we can't explain outside of Jesus, when we gather together in his name, when we get together with other believers and we hear about what he thinks about us and we hear about what he says and what he speaks over us, there is something that we cannot explain, but it moves us. It stirs us. It frees us and sets us free and fills us with hope and possibility. 
And maybe even in this service, you felt a little bit of that gravity pulling on your heart that Jesus might still be alive. So with all of that, what is it about the Christian message? What is it about the Christmas message that has made the world sit up and pay attention for thousands of years? Or maybe we should ask, what's missing from our understanding? If we don't feel that way about Christianity, what is it that we're missing? What is it that we're not getting that has caused us to turn away, caused so many others to turn away and be indifferent. And what, of all, what does all of this have to do with Christmas? And, and most importantly for us today, what does all of this have to do with me? Now, we could go a lot of different directions this morning, and, and since this is a little bit different than normal, maybe from a Christmas message that you've heard before, I, I think we might have to look at, a, at Christmas from maybe a not-so-normal perspective. And, and so I want to take us to a letter that was written to some non-Jewish Christians in a Roman province called Galatia, way back in the first century. This is about 20 or so years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, about 50 years before the first Christmas. And it comes to us from maybe the most prolific Christian of his time. His name was the Apostle Paul, a man called the Apostle Paul. And, and, and Paul's letter, letters are so compelling for a couple of reasons. And I want to take the time and, and tell you this, and I'll explain why in just a second. But first of all, why Paul's stuff is so, his writings are so compelling, is because over 99, probably 99% or more of the historians today, whether secular historians, Christian historians, they all agree like Paul lived. Like Paul was an actual person, a Jewish man that lived during the first century, and Paul was brilliant. In fact, one of his documents that we have, uh, it's called, we call it the Book of Romans, is considered to be one of the greatest pieces of literature ever written. And, and his letters are verifiable. Like there are copies found all over the world, copies that have been dated back to ancient times. And when they cross-check them, they see that, yes, Paul really wrote these things. And it's indisputable that Paul said and did these things and had a huge, unexplainable impact on the world. And one of the reasons, and this is the second reason I find Paul so compelling, one of the reasons that Paul had a huge impact is because when Paul stepped onto the world stage, Paul was not a Christian. Paul was not a Jesus follower. Paul was actually trying to stamp out Christianity. Paul hated Christians. Paul arrested Christians. Paul dispossessed Christians of their homes and exiled them and even had some Christians executed. And surely someone as angry as Paul, someone who hated Christianity as much as Paul would never convert to Christianity. And then one day, Paul steps to the microphone and he says, I have converted to Christianity. And he claimed to have seen something or experienced something. So, you know, just shook him to his core. And what he claimed was that he had met the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. And for the rest of his life, Paul traveled all around the Mediterranean Rim, starting and planting brand new little communities of Jesus followers. And, and he wrote them letters. And over half of what we call the New Testament in the Bible is, is, are these letters from Paul to these new believers. Now, why am I taking the time to go through this? The reason I'm taking the time to go through this is because for a lot of us, like I said, Christmas has become a little once upon a time-ish. Like we've kind of taken it from the realm of history and it has kind of moved into the realm of fable or story, but it is so much more than that. And if you're here and you have doubts and you're not sure, I get it. It all happened over 2,000 years ago, but maybe you've never heard some of the reasons why you can believe. And I, the more I study this, I'm here to tell you, it is so compelling. It is so compelling what you find about Jesus. There are very, very good reasons why you can trust what someone like Paul and someone like John had to tell us what, uh, about the life of Jesus and the birth of Jesus. And so Paul, writing this letter to the Galatians that we're about to read, he had probably met 
maybe met and, and, and knew Mary, the mother of Jesus. If not, he certainly knew and had met John, who took care of Mary in her old age until she passed away. And he's writing to a group of non-Jewish Christians in Galatia, people like you and me, people who came to Christianity later, who probably had questions about the Christmas story, 20 years on the other side of everything, looking back at the resurrection, looking back at the death, the life of Jesus, looking back at the birth of Jesus. And he starts to pull back the curtain a bit for the Galatians, starting to pull back the curtain a little bit for you and for me to try and share with us what Jesus, what the birth of Jesus might mean for us. And so we're diving right in Galatians chapter 4, and Paul starts out with this. He says, but when the set time had fully come, and this is what we talked about last week, that God had a date on the calendar, that God was moving all of history along, and there was no reason to fear, there was no reason to doubt his promise, that God was waiting for the perfect moment in history. And when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman. And Paul here with this phrase, like, I don't want to rush past this. Paul's starting to kind of open up and unpack some of the, unwrap some of the wonder and the mystery around Jesus that he was God's son, but strangely, and to a lot of people, unexpectedly, he was born of a woman. Unexpectedly, he was born of a virgin. And we know that it was unexpected because of how people reacted when Mary told them that she was expecting. Right? Mary says, I'm pregnant. And the dad says, who's the father? And Mary says, God. <laughs> and what does the dad say? Yeah, right, right? Come on, it's the same thing you'd say, right? I mean, nobody expected. She was engaged to Joseph. Joseph finds out she's pregnant. Joseph was such a nice guy. When he finds out she's pregnant, he loves her. She's the love of his life, but he can't live with that. He's going he's gonna to break off the engagement, but he's not going to do it publicly and write about it on Facebook. He's going to just put her away privately, put her away quietly. And it took a supernatural encounter for Joseph to be okay with his fiance, his bride-to-be, being pregnant, just like it would have taken a supernatural experience for you and for me to believe something like that. I love the Bible story. It's so, it's so believable. And so Paul is kind of dialing into this, kind of unpacking some of the wonder around this, that Paul is saying, like, we all missed it, and nobody expected the rescuer, the Messiah, to show up like this, born of a woman, born in a manger and making cooing sounds and having those big eyes, right, and, and learning to walk and learning to, like, like, he didn't ride an asteroid down to Mount Olympus and shoot thunderbolts from his nose. Like, no, he, he came as a baby. And nobody saw it coming, and he looked like us, and he came humbly in the form of us, and he was amazingly relatable, born of a woman so that we could understand who he is. And he goes on, and he says, born under the law to redeem those under the law. Now listen, Paul's writing to Galatians, who are people like us. They didn't grow up with the Jewish laws. We've all, and, and probably they had all, heard of the Ten Commandments, right? We know all the Old Testament, or we've heard at least hints of the Old Testament laws, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth and all those kinds of things. Paul has the whole Jewish law in mind because Paul was Jewish. He knew all of the law, all of the ins and outs, but he doesn't really force the details here. What Paul is doing is kind of cluing us in on some, you know, what we all know that even though we may not know all of the particulars, we all kind of know, we all kind of assume, we all kind of feel like God has some laws, there are some rules written down somewhere. I think it's in that book called the Bible. And we're pretty sure that we've broken some of those laws. 
Like, we know that, right? You're scared to admit it right now because nobody else is talking, but we know we're not very good at keeping rules, are we? No, we're not good at keeping rules. In fact, not only are we pretty sure that we don't keep God's laws, we don't even keep our own laws. Come on, how many New Year's resolutions have you kept? Jenny Craig would be out of business if you didn't break your own laws. 24-hour fitness would have more locations than Starbucks if you didn't break your own laws, right? There would be just about no more credit card companies left in America if we didn't break our own laws. But on our own, with nobody twisting our arm, we've experienced some of life, and we've experienced some hurt and heartache, and when we did, we made rules for ourselves. We made laws for ourselves. I will never do that. I will never be that. I will always be there. I will always... Come on, somebody. We made even our own laws, and then we broke them, and then we broke them again. And some of us have broken parenting laws that we've made. Some of us have broken marriage laws that we made. Some of us have broken honesty and integrity laws that we have made. We're all lawbreakers, not just God's laws, even our own. And maybe you're not even sure if you want to know God's laws. Maybe you're trying to make your way back and maybe trying to figure out what God's laws are. Are, but even if you're not there, we even break our own laws. If you've ever used a face palm emoji, it's probably when you broke your own law, did something you knew you shouldn't have, didn't do something that you told yourself you always would do, and you broke a law that you had made, and now you're wondering, like, how can I ever live with myself? How can I ever get past this? How can I ever make that up to them? And here's the thing about that phrase, make that up to them. We don't always think about it like this, but when we break laws, we actually create a debt. Breaking laws creates debt. If someone is convicted of a crime and they go to jail or they go to prison and they serve out their sentence, when they're released, we say about, we say about them, they have paid their debt to society. See, we know this. Breaking laws creates a debt. We all agree there should be speed limit laws, right? Well, y'all do. Like, we all agree there should be speed limit laws, right? And yet we have broken those laws, right? And then every once in a while you look in the rearview mirror and there's somebody there to remind you, you broke the law. And now you owe something. Because you broke the law, you have created a debt. And there's this interesting tension, isn't there? We agree with the law. We think the law is good, but yet we have broken the law, and now we owe something. And the same tension exists between husbands and wives and, and kids and, and their parents and parents and their kids and employers and employees and even family members. And every relationship has this tension when a law gets broken. In fact, maybe you, growing up, maybe you feel like somebody that was over you, responsible for you, maybe a father, maybe a mother, maybe you feel like they owe you. Come on, this is real stuff, right? Like, I've been a little bit silly, but this is where life gets real. This is where the Bible starts talking to us and starts working to heal us. Like, we all, maybe not we all, but there's some of us in this room, like, we think that our Father owes us a childhood. He owes us to have been there, right? And maybe your mom wasn't around, or maybe your mom was verbally abusive. Now there's this feeling you can't seem to get past it. Like, she owes me. For that, he owes me, they owe me, she owes me. There was something they were supposed to give, something they were supposed to be. And maybe it's from a past relationship. Maybe it was a law that you broke. And now there's this feeling. Or now maybe there are words that you keep hearing that now you owe something. And listen, 
Listen, from the standpoint of the God story, this is what the idea of sin is all about. We tend to think of sin as like the, you know, these random rules by this angry old man in the sky. That is not what sin is about. Sin isn't as much about breaking rules as it is about breaking relationships. You have broken your relationship with your creator, or you have broken your relationship with your husband, or with your wife, or your kids, or your employer, or your own integrity. And think, I mean, think about this, like sins, stealing Think about the sin of lying or hating or lusting. All of these things have to do with interactions and the way we view and the way we treat other people. Our sin is not isolated. Our sin is about relationships and our relationships with other people. So sin isn't about breaking random laws that don't seem to be useful. In fact, in one place in Genesis chapter 6, I love the way the New Living Translation puts this. It says that the sin and the evil that people were doing to each other, it broke God's heart. Now, why would sin break God's heart? Sin breaks God's heart because of what sin makes you do to one of his other creatures. He loves everybody equally. And when you and I commit those injustices, it breaks God's heart. Why is God angry with us when we sin? Why is there a little bit of that tension between us and God when we sin? Because of what we have done to someone that we, we love, we're supposed to love, right? And so God's heart is broken, just like my heart would be broken if you did something to hurt my son. And God rises up, and he's going to demand justice one day. If you don't get it taken care of in the meantime, one day God will demand justice, just like I might be tempted to demand justice, like lay aside my pastor role and put my Holy Ghost on hold if you ever hurt my daughter. Oh, come on, somebody, like... Mm, give you a black eye and then pray for your healing. Yes. There's a man with three daughters back there saying amen to that. Yeah. Sin dishonors. Sin hates a person. Sin takes from a child of God. Sin oppresses a person created in the image of God. Sin abandons Someone that God loves. Sin lies and doesn't count as worthy of truth. Someone that God has thought worthy of all of his love. And we all have sinned. We've all broken laws and we've all found ourselves with that feeling that we owe something. We broke God's laws. We, we broke family laws, which it turns out once you start studying might line up with God's laws a lot more than you think. We've broken marriage laws, which might surprise you that they line up with God's laws a lot more than you think. And law-breaking creates a debt. But here is the really, really good news that when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, so that he could experience the temptation and the pain and the heartache that we all go through, but not to leave us in our brokenness, not to leave us in our debt, not to leave us in condemnation and guilt, but to redeem those of us that were under our own weight of sin. What we could not escape for ourselves, God has already provided a means of escape in Jesus to redeem those under the law, to redeem us under the weight of our debt. This is the good news. This is the thing that lit up the world 2,000 years ago and counting with hope with the prospect of peace and the hope of reconciliation. This is what can light up your world. 
if you'll let it. This is why following Jesus is so compelling. It's so inviting. And if this doesn't appeal to you, maybe, maybe, maybe you're missing part of what God has done through Christmas for all of us in debt to God because we're the source of a lot of heartache. All of us who are in debt to God because we have wasted someone's years, we have caused someone tears, and we owe something, and we can't seem to pay it ourselves. We have tried. We've tried. But for all of us, Jesus has come to redeem each and every one of us. The debt that we owe to God has been paid. God in love, God in wisdom and mercy has spoken himself into our story. And what he has told us is that he has come to pay our debt. Now think about that. At Christmas, God spoke himself into our story to pay our debt. And John would later tell us, and I don't have time to get into it too deeply today, but John chapter 1, verses 1, verse 14, he would tell us that the word that God spoke, that word became a human. The word became flesh, and we saw him. And the world was able to know God through Jesus Christ. And when the set time was fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those of us under the law to pay our debt and set us free. Wow. Come on, somebody. Wow. That's the best kind of news. It's the best kind of Here's the thing, though. That's not really news for a lot of us. We kind of, we kind of get this. We kind of understand that church and God and Christianity, it's all about the forgiveness of sins. But honestly, it feels a little bit transactional. Like, if I can back us up a little bit, it feels a little bit like a transaction, right? Like, okay, Jared, I get how maybe I created this debt, right, by some of my law breaking. Okay, maybe I could start to believe that God has come and he, he's forgiven my debt, paid my debt in Jesus. And there's a lot to unpack there that we don't really have time for. But, but Jared, it just kind of feels like maybe I just got away with something. Like, you know, I, I, I get it, I'm forgiven, you know, but now what? It was a transaction. I broke the law and created debt. Jesus came to pay my debt, but now, now what happens on the other side? And Paul isn't done in Galatians because God wasn't done. And I think this is the part that we miss sometimes. And if you haven't fully checked in, fully engaged with following Jesus, listen, I think this is maybe the part that you forgive because it turns out there's a reason that he forgave our debt. That that wasn't the end of the matter. That was actually the beginning of what God has done for us. That wasn't all that God wanted to do for you. There is something more than just a, tra just a transaction. And so as Paul is, is writing to his audience, these Galatian, you know, Roman citizens in the first century, trying to figure out, like, how do I make this so they can understand it? How do I kind of help them see why it was so necessary? How do I help them understand why it's so compelling to me and why it should capture their hearts and, and turn their attention back to the Heavenly Father? Paul actually borrows a word picture, an idea that captures the idea of a father. In Galatians chapter 4 and verse 5, he goes on, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Adoption. He's forgiven our past. He's forgiven our debt. He's forgiven what we owe, not to leave us there, but to take us a step further, to adopt us as his children. More than a transaction, Paul is starting to, to get us to the reason why the Word had to become human, why God had to become relational, 
why we had to get to know God in a completely new context. And when Jesus showed up, he certainly introduced God in a brand new way. Nobody, he started talking about the Heavenly Father. Nobody knew what he was talking about. Nobody talked about God as the Heavenly Father. Mark, Jesus says, hey, or in the garden, Jesus says, Abba, Father. Nobody had called God Abba. It was this, this Aramaic word that basically means Daddy or Papa. Nobody had ever spoken to God like that. We all thought of God as, as judge, and, and he was the law keeper, and we were the law breakers, and there was this, this divide between us. And Paul's trying to get us to understand why God would come close to where we are in our brokenness. And what Paul is trying to show us is that more than transactional, God's plan and God's rescue for us is relational. He doesn't want to just forgive you and then leave you as you were. He wants to forgive you and then make you into something you could never be on your own. He doesn't want to just forgive your past. He wants to give you a guaranteed future that you could never come into on your own wealth. You could never attain on your own position and status and a family name and an identity. You will never find outside of Jesus Christ. But Paul is saying from the very beginning of time, when all of time had rushed to that one point, God began to reveal his plan. And his plan was to adopt you and me as sons and as daughters. Wow. And again, Paul was Jewish. See, Paul, you know, the people of Israel, they were the people of God. They kind of knew what it was like to be called the people of God or the family of God. And their nation had even been called the son of God by God himself in a couple of different places. He kind of he knew what it was like to live with this comfort in an identity. But he's writing to people who have never been Jewish they had no clue what it was like to be in relation to God. They had no clue of a deity outside of their own pagan deities where you come and you, you offer them something for the bad things you've done and then you go back and do more bad things and then you come and you offer something for the bad things. That was the only kind of relationship with a the God they expected. And Paul is trying to show them there's something brand new and it's Paul's heart. I mean, his religion had told him, his whole life growing up, the Jewish religion had told Paul, these non-Jewish people are unwanted. They are not worthy of your God's affection. The, the, the reason the Jews of Jesus' day rejected him is because Jesus was trying to give hope beyond the borders of Israel and they didn't like that. They wanted it to be us four and no more and certainly not the Romans. Because the Romans are cruel and mean. And as God began to work on Paul's heart and as Paul began to realize the message of Christmas and what it was saying, not just about the Jews, but what he was saying about the non-Jews, the heartbeat of the creator God sounded loudly with an amazing message. And Paul began to see it. And I'm praying that God helps me help you to see it this morning. That you, oh, come on, somebody, turn to somebody close to you and say, even you. Oh, come on, wrinkle your nose in surprise. Come on, tell them. Even you, that you, that me, that God loves us, that we were created on purpose. I don't care what your mom and dad said. 
We were created on purpose and we are made in the image of the creator God that from all of eternity, he has had his eye on you. His ear has been listening for your voice. His hand and his arms have been reaching for you that you are valuable to your creator, that you are loved in a way that you have never been loved before. God loves you and he wants you back as his own. Oh, come on, can you give thanks and praise to God for His grace and His mercy? Paul says God doesn't just want to forgive you. He doesn't just want to give you a transaction. He wants to give you a relationship. But not just any relationship. The relationship of sons and daughters. So He has adopted us. Now, i got to explain something about adoption. Because when we think about adoption, we think babies and innocence and maybe giving a child their first Christmas with a family, right? It's cute and it's cuddly and it's warm. And we've all seen the Hallmark movie, right? It's just, you know, it's something beautiful and all this. But I, I want you to do a little exercise with me this morning. I thought about putting a picture up there, but I was worried it would scare everybody. So just do a little exercise with me. I want you to picture a baby in a onesie, but don't put a face there yet. I want you to picture, you know, the babies wear those footy pajamas, like the footy pajama onesie things. I want you to picture the crib, picture a bonnet, maybe a little rattle in the hand, a little blankie, you know, that little go-to-sleep thing playing on the mobile. I want you to, no face yet, right? You got it? Now, close your eyes. I want you to picture that baby. And now for the face, this is what I want you to do. For the face of that baby that you're thinking about, I want you to substitute the face of a 40-year-old man. Yeah, that's why I didn't put a picture on the screens. Exactly. That's why I didn't want to go there, right? See, Paul was a Jew, and the Jews didn't really adopt like that. They had a whole other like, thing that they did for, to handle adoption, to handle orphans. But the Romans didn't really adopt like we adopt either. They had adoption, but it was completely different. They would adopt adults, which is weird to us. Can I hear a yes from somebody? Like, that's just Weird, right? I mean, to adopt an adult. The Romans were actually like a little bit cruel, and they were so into their, their gods and the fates, they would call them, that if there was a baby that was born into a really poor family or a baby that was unwanted by the mother or the father, this, this, this breaks my heart, they would take the baby to like the edge of a forest and leave it. Or they would put the baby into a thing and, and put it into one of their sacred rivers and send it off. And if it was the fates... For the baby to live, then the baby would live. But if the baby did not make it, then it was just the fates that had decided that that life was not worth it. And that's why orphans were such a big deal to the first century church. This is why orphanage, or taking care of orphans, James chapter 1, was so important to them. It was counterculture. Nobody had ever done this before. There was never a group of people before that came along and wanted the children that nobody else wanted. But Jesus changed everything. Amen. And so the Romans would adopt adults. In fact, only wealthy Romans would adopt adults. Of course, a poor Roman wouldn't adopt an adult. If you were an adult, you wouldn't be, want to be adopted by a poor Roman, right? So the wealthy Romans, they would adopt adults because they would amass you know, great fortune and wealth. And, and if, you know, to them, the family name and family honor was all sacred. And the rich people would look at their rich, spoiled kids because we all know how rich, spoiled kids are. And apologies to any rich, spoiled kids in here. I'm sure you're a great person. But we all know how rich kids are. Like the stereotype, not you, but the stereotype, right? And the rich Romans would look at their, their spoiled kids and they think, I, I can't leave my wealth and my name to them. 
And so they would look around at an adult that they liked in their community. They would find somebody else who had, you know, good character and seemed to do well with what little money they have. And wealthy Romans would adopt full-grown adult Romans to be their heirs, to carry on their plans for after they died. Julius Caesar, you guys know Julius Caesar probably, right? He was the one that kicked off the whole Roman Empire thing. He wasn't actually an emperor, but he was assassinated in the Senate. Well, when they gathered around after his assassination to read his will... All his family's there, you know, and they gather around to read his will. Well, surprise to everybody, in his will, he had actually adopted his 19-year-old grandnephew named Octavian. What happened to Julius Caesar's natural kids? I have no idea, and neither do you, except maybe some obscure historian might know. But when Julius Caesar adopted Octavian, he wrote them right out of popular history. He wrote his own kids right out of popular history and put all of his his reputation and his name onto Octavian and made him his namesake. That's cold, isn't it? Come on, somebody. Like, you know, Caleb, I don't really like the way you're turning out. I'm instead going to adopt Calvin. No, that's never. You know that's fiction. Like, that's, you know, just... So Octavian, he follows suit. He, you know, he follows the culture. When he becomes, or when he gets older, he, be, he changes his name to Caesar Augustus, becomes the first emperor of Rome. He was the emperor of Rome when Jesus was born. We find that out in the Gospels. Well, he had a daughter, and he, couldn't, he didn't think he could leave his daughter everything. Well, his daughter had some kids, so he actually adopted his grandkids. He bumped them up a level on the family tree just to treat them as an option for when he got older. And then that didn't really look like it was working out. So as he got older, he was married to a lady, and she had a son from a previous marriage named Tiberius. And so Octavius said, you know what, I actually kind of like Tiberius. And he adopted Tiberius as his own son when Tiberius was 40 years old. And Tiberius ended up becoming the second emperor of Rome. He was the emperor when Jesus was crucified. And then, you know, Octavian, Caesar Augustus, he ends up dying. And, you know, everybody thinks, well, Tiberius is going to be, you know, the head honcho all by himself. And they get it around to gather around to read the will. And Octavian, you know, Caesar Augustus had put a little surprise in there, just like Julius, just like Uncle Julius, dad, Uncle Julius had done. And when they read the will, it turns out that he had adopted his own wife, Tiberius' mother. He made his wife his own daughter, to make her eligible to become co-regent with Tiberius. Now, at first I thought that was weird, but I'm thinking that might be fun. Like, you know, adopt Chelsea as my daughter right before I kick the bucket. You know, like if I got anything to leave, you know, Caleb and JL, they all gather in the room and the lawyer starts to read my will if I got anything more than 20 bucks to leave to everybody. And, you know, I, Jared, being of sound mind, do bequeath 100% of all my $20 to my wonderful children, you know, and JL and Caleb give each other high fives. And Caleb Alvarez, JL Alvarez, and Chelsea Alvarez, my daughter. You're like, what in the, it's just weird. Y'all don't even know how to react right now. You're not sure if you should laugh and you can't really laugh because your mouth's kind of like this, right? Like he made his wife, his daughter. It's just so strange, right? But I just want to mess with him. You know, kind of give them a little bit to think about. Give them a reason to treat their mom, sister nice after I'm gone, right? And they can treat the guy that she marries after me however they want. I already hate that guy. I don't care what they do with him. But, but that's how the first century, that's how first century Rome did adoption. And look, I guess this is my point. I, don't miss this. I want you to lean into this. Listen, what I, I guess what I'm trying to say is if you are here this morning and you have great means and some wealth and you don't really like your kids, I'm open for adoption. 
I could do yard work, but I don't like socks for Christmas. So just, you know, but no, it's <laughs> not what I'm trying to get at. What I'm trying to get at is this. When Paul wrote this idea of adoption to the Galatians, they would understand something completely different by his, re- his, his, his reference to adoption. What they would understand is that when nobody else would have picked them to adopt, that God had seen them in all of their failure. That God, who knew the full extent of their debt, he knew exactly how much they owed because God knows every time you have ever broken his laws or your laws or anybody else's laws, that when God would look at us, even though he knew all of the law breaking we had done and the debt that we owed, that God would see something in us that would make him say, I choose you. I choose who you are. When nobody else will give you a second chance, I will redeem you to myself and adopt you, and I will make you my son and my daughter. That I will speak over you the family name. That I choose you to carry on my character into the world. I choose you to be the recipient of my riches and my grace and my mercy, even though we had done nothing nothing to deserve it. We didn't deserve one thing. But we who are buckling under the weight of our past, we who buckle under the weight of our our, our regrets, Paul says that God sees us at our lowest and he shouts from the heavens, I will take you as my own. I call you son. I call you my daughter. My daughter. Sons and daughters of God, pasts fully known. All of the things that we hope nobody ever finds out about God knows, and in spite of our sin and in spite of what we owe God, God in Christ has still chosen us and made us joint heirs with Christ. Can you pause and lift up your hands and your voices and just give Him thanks this morning for His grace and His mercy for the hope that he speaks over to Thank you, Jesus. Come on, lift up your voices a little bit longer. Come on. Come on, if you can believe this, if you can accept this, if you can start to believe this this morning, that God would love you as you are. Mm. And when we did not even deserve his forgiveness, he went beyond forgiveness and he gave us his name. When we could never repay the debt of our failures. He went beyond paying our debt and he baptized us in his grace. When we were hopeless and helpless to ever recover from the shame of our past, he's made us sons and daughters and he has given us a future. This is why church is never supposed to be about once a year or once a month, you know, it's, it's not supposed to be about a check-in for a checkup, and then you, you kind of leave the doors and you leave God in the building and you go back out and try and cope with life as best as you can on your own. Come on, we know we're not good enough. We know we're not smart enough. We know we don't have enough resources. We're not strong. We know we're going to break some laws again if we're left on our own. Some marriage laws, some parent laws, family laws, financial laws, whatever it might be. And we know, we know, because we've been doing church this way for years, we know that a religious transaction, it just falls short on its own because a transaction takes care of our past. But who am I in the future? And do I even have 
the future. And Paul is saying it is so much more than a transaction. It is an adoption. It's a brand new family. It's a brand new name. It's a brand new hope. It's the Father's presence, the Father's ear, the Father's hand, the Father's love that will never, ever leave you feeling like He owes you something because, because He has given to us freely what we did not deserve. And then He doesn't even stop there. He goes on in verse 6 and He says, Because you are His sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. There's that word again, Abba. Father, Papa, Father, my dad, Father, when you accept the transaction, when you accept the grace, and, and then when you go beyond that and recognize all that he is inviting you to become, everything that he wants to speak over you, he sends the Spirit into our hearts that looks at God in a whole new way and calls out Abba. It's an Aramaic word, and when they were translating the original Bible into, into Greek, they didn't even have a Greek word for Abba. And if it was translated into English, again, the closest we could come is dad or daddy. It's something familiar and something intimate, something that honestly, come on, men, this is hard for grown men to say comfortably, to call somebody daddy. Like, why would God try and have us call him daddy? I think he did it on purpose because it's kind of hard to be macho and call somebody daddy, right? Like, it's, it just doesn't feel right. It's almost like Paul saying, you got to give up any pretense of being able to make it on your own. Come on, men. you got to give up any pretense that you can handle life on your own. We're the strong ones. I'm the strong, silent type. I'm just not very emotional. Yeah, I saw you when the Raiders lost last week. Come on. And the week before. And the week before. The week before. Oh. Abba. My papa. The one that knows everything about me the one that has seen me at my lowest, the one that has seen me do things that I hope nobody ever finds out. I hope the re record stays hidden. I, I just hope that, that nobody tells my dirt. Seen me, found me. When I was unwanted, when I had broken things so bad, I don't think that will ever recover. And I wonder about my self-worth. I wonder if I could ever move on, if I can ever recover from this. Paul says, he wants to do something for you that will make you see God in a brand new way as his son and as his daughter. Jesus has changed. Paul, in echoing the words of Jesus, has completely changed how we are supposed to feel toward God. You know, I, I love the story. My dad told me this, related this to me. My great-grandmother, his mom's mother, uh, when she passed away, she was old. She loved loved God and lived a, a, to a ripe old age, had a good life. And uh, my grandmother, his mom, was able to travel back to Mexico to be with her when she was dying and was there by her bedside when she passed away. And she related the story before my grandmother passed away. She related the story that as my great-grandmother lay there, there was a point where she opened her eyes and looked up at the ceiling and she said something to the effect of, Poppy, I'm coming, Poppy. I'm coming. And when I see myself and I know who I've been and I know what I've done, and if we're honest this morning, we all know that we've broken laws and we've created debt, we've ruined things and we messed up, messed up opportunities. And us who know ourselves at our worst and knowing that God knows us at our worst, to think that there could ever be a way, that there could ever be a chance 
that we could look to the creator God and call him Poppy, Daddy, Papa. How, Jesus, we need you this morning. Come on, all over this room, could you, could you maybe bow your heads or lift up your hands and just thank him for the chance, the chance of redemption, the chance of redemption, the chance of hope. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. The musicians could come this morning. I want to go on, but I want to skip over some stuff. Paul goes on to say, so you are no longer a slave. And I know slavery with our recent American history, it kind of leaves us thinking one thing. And not all slave, most slavery in Paul's day was not race driven or race, you know. I mean, we kind of understand some of their, their categories of slavery back in the days. Like, you know, just 20 years ago, right? If you went to a restaurant and didn't have your wallet and you ate dinner, what are you doing after you eat dinner? You're washing dishes. It's exactly right. And they didn't have Equifax or FICO scores back then. You didn't carry debt in that world. When you had a debt that you could not pay, you had to go work it off. Or else you went to debtor's prison and your family worked it off. And Paul is saying, so you are no longer a slave because he has paid your debt. You are debt free in your soul. And he has made you a child there's this new spirit inside of you that knows God in a brand new way. And when you find yourself lacking, and when you find yourself unequal to the work that needs to be done in your life, unequal to the task of, of being a brand new person, you are no longer poor. You are no longer without resources. You're no longer without the strength to do it on your own. But you have been made rich. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. An heir of amazing grace, an heir of mercies that are new every morning, an heir of an adoption that we certainly didn't deserve, but has been so beautifully gifted to us. And you can dip into his vaults of wisdom. You can spend his kindness without ever running out. You have been adopted when nobody else would have done it, when others wouldn't have given you another chance. He has made you sons and daughters of God. And what Paul is telling us is that this is the real message of Christmas, that God sent his son into the world so that you could become his child. Not so that you could simply be forgiven, that's just a transaction, but so that you could see God in a whole new way. So that not just your actions or your behaviors for a moment, but your heart, your core, your personality could be turned back to God in repentance, in gratitude, in hope, and enjoy. That's what Christmas is about. That's why we are glad for Christmas. Can we all stand in the room this morning? This Christmas, you have to understand something. If you forget everything else, if you could just leave with this, this one concept that the creator of everything has spoken himself into our darkness. And what he has spoken about himself has been on display now for thousands of years. And what he has said to us in the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what he has spoken to us is just how much we are worth to him. But you today, I wonder how you see your own value in his eyes. I wonder how you would view the God of heaven. I wonder how you pray. 
I wonder what your approach is when you come to God and you, you bend a knee. Do you still see him as, as a judge? Or do you still see him as, as a rule maker and yourself kind of as this, this lawbreaker and God's kind of random and unpredictable? Or maybe you see him as mean and vindictive. And maybe you see him as a deal maker, right? Like, God, I, I did this for the last three Sundays, so I'm going to give you this one. God, this is what I did last year, so I'm going to try and give you this year, but if you're still trying to make deals with God, you're still not seeing him as your papa, as your dad, as someone who loves you more than you have ever been loved in your life. And Paul would say to you, and Paul would say to me, you can be done with that. That's old covenant thinking. That's pagan God thinking. But your God has done something so much more than just a transaction He has adopted you as his own son and his own daughter. There's more than what you've been living for. There's more than what you've been praying for. And if it ever moves from your head to your heart, if it can ever move from our heads, and if it can ever get into our hearts, it will change us. It will change the way that we pray. It's going to change the way we respond to temptation. It will change the way you respond to your failures. It will change how you see your value, even though you know your past. And it will change the hope that you have for your future. For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.